I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. I'm also excited to announce that the Karen Lewis Eating Disorder Center is expanding throughout the country. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode, and I hope everyone listens to this. My guest for today is Skylar Baylar, and we talk about everything from eating disorders, people who are transgender. We talk about the politics. We talk about medical barriers, therapeutic barriers. I I, I could go on, but I'm just going to have everyone listen to the episode. Let Skylar tell you about this. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a really exciting episode of Recovery Bites. I want to welcome you all to our 100th episode, and I am incredibly honored to have our guest on today, Skylar Baylar. Skylar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and so special that it's the 100th episode. Well, we are very honored that that you are the 100th guest, and I am just thrilled to have you. So, Skylar, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much. My name is Skylar. I use he, him pronouns. I am 25, but almost 26. I'll be 26 in a couple of days. Um, I am the first openly transgender athlete to compete for a division one men's team in college. I swam for four years at Harvard University, and that provided me the platform to really begin speaking and sharing about my experience as a transgender person, as a transgender athlete, as a Korean American transgender person. Um, I think that another really important relevant piece of information is I struggled with an eating disorder uh, in high school, and I actually took a gap year between high school and college, and I went to a, a recovery center, a rehab center to get better. Um, And that was actually where I discovered that I am transgender. Um, I went to OPC, which is Oliver Pride Centers in uh, in Miami, Florida, um, and treatment saved my life. Uh, I really don't know if I would be here today without it. Um, And especially with the the providers that that were gender affirming, that provided me with access to other trans people and learning about trans people. So um, all of those things inform who I am today and how I um, work in the world, I think, especially how I activate in the world as a Korean American queer transgender person who's recovered from eating disorder. So that leads me to so many things that I want to talk about, Skylar. Uh, I mean, there's just so many things. So 
I think what I want to start with is what is it like? Like what barriers for people, if you are going to therapy, you are questioning transgender, you're questioning your identity and have an eating disorder. Now, the therapist is the one who actually writes the letter for in, that allows somebody to get surgery. What happens when therapists are not educated on transgender, on gender dysmorphia? Uh, like, wow. And when you talk about having an eating disorder, because they can then say, mm, this could be more about your eating disorder than anything else. Like, I know that's a big place to start, but it's a big question. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's go right there. Yeah. So let me, let's, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that not every transition looks the same, right? So when somebody is transgender and they want to transition, transition is any step or steps that a person takes to affirm gender identity. Not every person transitions, first of all. Um, and second of all, not every transition looks the same. So some people, yes, they do want to take hormones or get surgeries, um, but some people don't. And I think it's super important to recognize that diversity within, even within the transgender population, right? Um, the next thing is that I think it's really, really important to recognize, and I know we'll dive into this later, but the difference between gender dysphoria and gender and, and body dysmorphia, right? So even I stumbled there. It's important because these words are sounding similar. And even as you said it, Karen, right? You said gender dysmorphia. I realized. Yeah, no, but it's good. It's good to make that mistake so we can talk about it. So gender dysmorphia doesn't exist. There is no such thing as gender dysmorphia. It's gender dysphoria, right? Um, and it's easy to mistake to make. I know that you didn't intend anything, but I want, I'm actually really glad that you made that mistake because I think that a lot of people do. And the, we'll jump into it, I think, deeper, but in short, a lot of people confuse them. And gender dysphoria is the distress or discomfort that arises from the incongruence between gender assigned at birth, so for me, female, and gender identity, so for me, male. That incongruence can produce distress. And for a lot of people, that's clinically significant distress uh, and, and called, again, just gender dysphoria. Dysmorphia, body dysmorphia with an M, is about uh, perfectionism, about body, and it really is related to self-worth uh, issues or, or a feeling of lack of control, um, basically a cognitive dissonance that needs cognitive reframe and not actually changing anything about one's body. Whereas gender dysphoria can actually be treated by changing things with one's body to be more congruent with one's gender identity. Um, so there's, it's very complicated, but the reason that that's the answer to your question is because a lot of a lot of people think that gender dysphoria is, quote, just uh, you know, a result of an eating disorder, like you said. And it's super important for providers to be educated about, hey, what gender dysphoria is and about transgender people's experiences so they can help distinguish what is rooted in an issue of identity, right, gender dysphoria, and what is rooted in an issue of self-worth, uh, self-control, um, and other really important and, and, and difficult but um, not transgender-specific issues, right? Um, I think there's a, a lot there, so I'm not sure where you want me to push in, but that's sort of an overview, if you will. So let me take a step back, Skylar. Let's, can we, before we, we I, and I know I'm the one that jumped into all the, this stuff, but can we talk about what your experience was like when you were in high school and with your eating disorder and swimming in the, on the women's team, going to treatment, having that realization. It was when you said you were working with therapists that were gender affirming, that were helping you get through this, talk about this and process it. 
and then what it was like after, because I think if we understand maybe a, if, if I can say a snapshot of this, uh, which is not the best definition of it, but then we might be able to understand what's happening with therapy, with politics, with the medical system, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So I went to treatment um, in 2014, literally the day after I graduated from high school, I flew to Miami um, and, and checked into OPC. Um, I, when I say that I had gender affirmation within my my treatment team, it was really my therapist. So my therapist, Josephine, um, and with her consent, I have shared her name. Um, Josephine did an, a really excellent job of pushing into what was the root cause, right? Eating disorders, as we all know, hopefully, are, are not usually the root cause, right? Eating disorders are a coping mechanism, and, and there's something underneath that that's really making us struggle. So for me, there was a lot of things that were the root cause, but one of them was the, the incongruence of my gender identity and my gender assigned at birth. And I didn't know that. I didn't have the words for that. But the, the more we dug into my childhood and we dug into times that I felt more comfortable with myself, I always I always came back to sort of an eight-year-old, very boyish Skylar. And we talk about how I felt more comfortable with my short hair, short hair or the fact that people perceived me as a boy. And Josephine was like, let's talk about that. And I was like, no, I don't want to talk about that. And she's like, okay, well, then we're definitely talking about that. Um, and so she, she really pressed me on gender in a way that allowed me to explore. And after a while, when I still wouldn't say the word transgender, despite knowing it, um, she said, why don't you meet other trans people? There's a place in Miami called the Yes Institute that they do trainings uh, regarding trans people and just gender, the gender continuum. And I, I went to a couple workshops and that was where I realized for sure where I could no longer deny this is who I am. Um, I, I did struggle after that um, with having gender affirmation. And this goes, goes, back, goes back to your original question about about therapists sort of, um, I'm going to use the word gatekeeping, whether or not trans people can get gender affirming healthcare specifically, so surgeries and hormones. Um, so at that time, when I had realized that I was trans and, and was sure about it, I wanted to go through top surgery. Um, and top surgery is a mastectomy for trans masculine individuals like myself, um, a double mastectomy, a removal of breasts, a masculinization of chest. And everybody at OPC, for the most part, um, the clinical lead and such wouldn't sign my letter. They said that, uh, you know, this is too soon. You don't really know. This could be just a phase. Um, you know, this is this is really, uh, you're not ready for this. It's too close to you getting out of treatment because it was right after treatment and, and nobody would sign the letter. And this is, I, I, I strongly want to say, this is not to disparage any of the providers at the time because they have since come back to me and said, oh my gosh, if I knew what I knew now, I would do that differently. I'm so sorry that I didn't sign that letter. But at the time, and this is really important, at the time, all the all the literature that was out there said you had to be on T, on testosterone for a year, having to have presented yourself as the gender that you identify with for a year, which also, what does that mean, presenting yourself as the gender? Because then they're gatekeeping what exactly manhood or womanhood looks like. Um, there was all this literature that, that, that barred them from signing the letters for me. And I had to eventually, I, I left treatment, um, and that was when I'd asked them to sign the letter was once I had left treatment. But over the next probably six to 12 months, I sought out 
therapists that could potentially sign this letter for me. And I went to several that wouldn't. Even ones that were considered gender therapists, they wouldn't sign my letter. Um, and I actually had to find a therapist, and I definitely will not name her, because she signed a letter saying that she had seen me for a year, which she hadn't. She had seen me twice um, and signed a letter that said that she you know, was okay with this um, and that this was that I had followed all the rules, which I hadn't, <laughs> um, because she believed in me. And she was willing to violate the rules in order to do that. And I'm so thankful that she did because that surgery was life-saving for me. Getting top surgery was so important to me. Um, so I don't fault any therapist. I don't fault that therapist for breaking the rules. And I don't fault the, the therapist that I had prior or the, the you know providers I had prior who, who followed the rules and therefore didn't provide me with gender-affirming healthcare. But this is why this education is so important. Because now when I go back and talk to people, like I said, I've had pretty much every provider that I worked with come back with me and say, gosh, I wish I had known what I know now. I wish I'd had your education, Skylar, then, because I would have been able to better provide for you. Um, and that's what we're missing. And so that's why I do the work that I do. And I, I do want to jump in and ask, what is it that was just launched? Say a little bit about that, because this education is life-saving. You're right. Say a little bit about what you're doing with that. So over the, the past several years, about six, seven years of this, um, I've been speaking about my experience. I gave 102 speeches before I graduated from, from Harvard. Um, so while I was there, I was doing this work. And then now in the three years since I've graduated, I've done about 400 plus speeches. And what I what I realized is that this education, A, is very, very needed. B, it can be life-saving. Um, and C, I cannot reach everybody. And so I took the trainings that I've been doing live, all the live speeches, the live trainings, and I put them into a virtual training uh, platform, basically a virtual learning series. It's called Lane Changer. Um, when you change lanes in swimming, you, you rise in, in place, in stature. So um, it's sort of a play on Game Changer. So it's Lane Changer. Um, and it, it brings the education that I've been doing for years now to everybody anywhere, right? It's a virtual learning platform. You can just go to lanechanger.com and buy it and take it immediately. It starts with about a 15 minute um, reflection on my story. It gets you engaged, gets you, I, I think storytelling is the best way to teach. Um, and then it goes through a little bit of vocab and then you got the chance to choose between about 40 plus Q and A videos that are all the common topics that I get asked about, uh, about trans people, including is being trans a phase? How do I support my trans child? What do I do uh, as a company to be more supportive of, of trans people? Um, what was it like coming out? How do I receive coming out, right? It has all the, the common questions. And I think that if every provider could take lane changer, I think it would better uh, equip them to, to treat and to be respectful to trans people. There's, there is actually incredible literature out there and there's a book. A clinician's guide to gender affirming care and eating disorders. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a great book. It's an incredible book. And by the way, it is our responsibility to be educated on this. It is not your responsibility to come into a therapy room when you're coming to talk to me about your eating disorder and I start asking you questions about gender. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna highly encourage everybody to, to, to get educated and look into lane changer because it is, it is not the client's job. And that can be that can make it even more off-putting for a client to even get the do the work that they really, really, truly went for. Yeah, 
No, it's so it's so important. And I want to share this little anecdote because I think um, this is where, where therapists can really, really miss. Um, I've been misgendered by therapists before. And I had a therapist once that misgendered me. And that is probably one of the worst places to be misgendered. I mean, there's lots of misgendering is never never really pleasant. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, misgendering is using the wrong pronouns or wrong gendered words to refer to somebody. So for example, I use he, him pronouns. Um, and if somebody were to call me she, her pronouns, if they were to call me a woman, and if they were to call me miss, that would be considered misgendering, right? Um, dead naming is another form of misgendering. Dead naming is to use a name that that person no longer uses. We call it a dead name because the name is dead. It's done. It's not a birth. And a lot of trans people prefer to use the word dead name instead of birth name. Um, so I was misgendered by a therapist a couple of times. And I, and I, I want to explain this sort of cascade. And I've actually talked about it with Wendy before um, directly. Uh, and she asked me, can you really explain to this group of therapists what it feels like to you? Because I think this is really important. So when, I, when I've gotten misgendered by a therapist, the thought process goes very dark very quickly. It goes from, okay, so she doesn't see me correctly. So therefore, um, I can't be trusted. I'm not trustworthy. Can I even claim my gender in the world ever? Should I exist? I don't want to be here. Right? It, goes, it goes to suicidality very, very fast. Because if I can't even be seen by the person who's trying to provide me with mental health care, and as something so basic as my gender identity, so core as my gender identity, how can I trust this person to do anything else for me, right? How can I trust myself in this world that already doesn't see me anywhere else? So it, it can be extremely devastating when we are misgendered, but especially by a provider. And so I always encourage providers to make sure they're asking for their clients' pronouns and then using them. And when they mess up, it's it might happen, right? We can't, we can't be perfect all the time. We all come with our own biases. So we might misgender somebody and we need to address it immediately and apologize and then move on. It needs to be um, he, she, I'm sorry, she, and move on, right? I'm not referring to myself. Obviously, this would be for a trans feminine client, perhaps. But I think it's really important to just apologize, correct, and move on. Um, if it's a consistent problem, you really need to do a deep dive on your own. Why are you misgendering this person? What biases do you hold in your brain that are encouraging this, right? Um, do you need to sit and practice every single day and and correct yourself with pronouns. And I've given this recommendation to other providers before. I've given people assignments, sit down every day for at least five minutes and write a paragraph about your client with the correct pronouns. And every time you mess up, correct it, right? And that's a little exercise you can do. I also want to point out, and, and I could be wrong, but the reason why it's so important to correct it, say, I'm sorry, and move on is because when it becomes a bigger thing from the therapist perspective, it is now about the therapist. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. And now the client is trying to soothe them saying, it's okay, no worries. And it's not. But if we just simply say, I am, I'm really sorry, keep moving on. There, there are so many pieces of the therapeutic relationship or of any relationship that are that are really really important and so I don't know if you agree with that but I just wanted to to throw that out there yeah no that's something I tell people often Karen thanks for that addition um when when you when somebody apologizes profusely oh my god I'm so sorry I didn't mean to do that here's why I did that I'm gonna, let me explain myself I'm so sorry I will never have again then the person who's being apologized to feels like they have to take care of the person who's doing the apologizing and so what happens then it becomes about the therapist right 
So I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I think for the, for for most people, they don't want to take care of somebody else and nor should they, even if they wanted to. Um, the therapist should never put the client in a position for any reason, right? Where the client feels they must take care of the therapist's feelings. That's for the therapist to deal with. Um, and I, I wanna say, you know, therapists are people too. So you need to find an outlet for that. If you feel horrible and you are ruminating about it and you're really struggling because you don't, you're not calling your client the right pronouns or you you made a mistake with your client and you really upset them, that's something for you to make space for feeling, just not in the hour or the 50 minutes that you're with your client. Um, so I do encourage you to make space for that, but talk to your supervisor, talk to your therapist, talk to your friends, right? But don't put it on your client. If we were going to shift a little bit from the therapeutic relationship or model to uh, to the medical part of this, now let's talk about there. There are more reasons. There's more uh, chances for gatekeeping. So, what happens when somebody is struggling with an eating disorder and? part of them being able to get the the transition part you were talking about, which is surgery, they have to be at a certain BMI. Like what is happening in the medical field that people cannot be people yet you can get plastic surgery at any, and I mean, no disrespect to anyone who gets plastic surgery, but what, why is there so much gatekeeping in the medical field as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm imagining that also exists with plastic surgery too. So, I mean, I think that, you know, there is fat phobia and weight discrimination. I know not everybody likes the word fat phobia. So there, there's weight discrimination and size discrimination um, everywhere in the medical field. I think it, it doesn't matter where. I think it does absolutely affect trans people. I actually have had multiple trans people come up to me and say something like, I, my doctor says I can't get top surgery until I lose a certain amount of weight. And I always think that that's absolutely ridiculous and horrible for many reasons. One, BMI is a very racist colonist, like colonizer, uh, uh, white supremacist standard as is, right? Um, we all, like we all know, oh, hopefully we know, <laughs> BMI history is not particularly great. And if you don't know, please go Google that. It's very simple to find. Just Google BMI and racism, and you'll find the sources immediately. Um, so I think it's way way overdue for us to 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 you know get rid of uh, uh, BMI as any kind of standard. Um, I also know that there are, and I think this is really important to say, there are doctors out there who will not keep with BMI for top surgery, for example. And I know that because I've heard of people saying, yes, this doctor said no to me because of BMI and this doctor you know, said yes to me. Um, I had a really large chest before I had top surgery. Um, and I know people will tell people like, like I used to look and say, well, your chest is too big. You can't get top surgery, right? And I've heard that happen as well from other people. Um, and these are really just doctors essentially saying they are not competent enough to perform a surgery that might be different from what is considered average or quote normal, right? And I think that we need, again, more education within doctors. I'll also add, and I think this is really important to remember that this disproportionately affects black and brown folks, right? Um, and indigenous folks. And I think that we we need to address racism um, and white supremacy uh, in that space just as much as we need to address transphobia and they're, they're all interconnected. How do you feel like your, your eating disorder was the manifestation of your eating disorder, how did that play into, like when you said you had a large chest, like I know that 
you know, people that I had anorexia nervosa because I didn't want to have a chest. I wanted to, you know, I didn't like, I wanted to look thin and small and almost look like a boy. So how did your eating disorder? And I also want people to understand that your anorexia, anorexia and bulimia came about after you broke your back and you couldn't swim. And suddenly you had all this time to think about like, what is going on in my life? And that's when the eating disorder happened So or started. So how did it play into what you were struggling with? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, eating disorders are always deeper than the surface, right? So even as you said, like you, you said something about wanting to look a certain way and that's why you had an eating disorder or you had anorexia. Um, and I, you know, I, I had imagined, I'm speaking for you for a second, but I'd imagine that it was deeper than that, right? Wanting to be small, wanting to be adolescent, wanting to be, you know, not grow up perhaps. Without a doubt, it was just one of the things that I was very ashamed that I had a chest. And so there are a thousand other things that went into it. And one of them is I was afraid to become a woman, become an adult, become a grown up, become sexual, all these things. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you added that. So I, I always like, I always like to, to paint that sort of fuller picture. Cause I think that there's so much misinformation about eating disorders. And I want that to, to, I want people to understand that, for example, not wanting to have a chest, um, if you are a, a woman, um, is, is often not an indicator necessarily immediately that you're trans, for example, but rather that, and I know this is common for, for people who have struggled with anorexia and who are, who are women is that they don't, like you said, don't want to grow up. There's this fear of growing up. And, and what does that mean? How do I become a woman? How do I be sexualized in this world that is massively sexualizing of, of women, right? And young girls actually. <laughs> um, so I, in my experience, um, with my eating disorder, I, I, there were so many different factors that contributed to sort of the the height of it, if you will. Um, I think there were, I grew up with a lot of food rules. I grew up with a lot of, um, I think pressures just in, not only at home, but in society about food as being, I was an elite athlete from a very young age as well. And, and that contributed to this sort of over focus on health, almost orthorexic in, in ways. Um, and when I broke my back, I, right before then I had been basically living for swimming. That's all I did is I, I ate so I could swim. I slept so I could swim. I did my homework on time so I could swim. Everything was about swimming. Um, and when I broke my back, everything disappeared. Suddenly I felt like I didn't have a purpose anymore. And if we look back retrospectively, I think the reason I dove so, pun intended, I dove so you know strongly and so completely into swimming being my purpose was because I was kind of a shell of a person. I really didn't have anything else because I didn't know um, deeply who I was. I felt so disconnected from my gender and from people around me as a result. Well, gender was massively important in middle school. And I was so weird. And I mean that in the, in the sense of like, I, I would, people called me weird. I was considered weird. I was such a social outcast. I was bullied by boys for not being a quote, real boy. And I was bullied for girls for not being girl enough. Right. So I always got stuck in between. And when I, when I, when I had, when I invested in swimming, that gave me a purpose and a purpose I loved. I loved being in the water. Um, so when I broke my back, that all disappeared overnight. Right. And I went not only from from being somebody who swam for 20 hours a week to somebody who didn't, but also to somebody who was laying on a bed with a back brace in my, my whole body and couldn't even pick up a book. I couldn't pick up anything that was more than five pounds. 
So in that time, I really began struggling and, um, and it, it was, I was sort of forced to think about who I was, but I didn't know how. And so there, you know, there lies the eating disorder because it became a coping mechanism for me to ignore, for me to feel something, for me to feel like I had a sense of control, um, for me to control my body in some ways that made me feel more comfortable. Um, but I think most of all, it was a way to express a deep pain that I had at the time. I, I know this is slightly off topic, but it just made me think of this. One of the other things that people I'm going to actually encourage for education is your book, Obi is Man Enough. And the reason why I just thought of that is because when you were talking about when you were younger and you were teased that you were, you were teased by the boys because you weren't man enough. You were teased by the girls because you weren't feminine enough. All these things. I have to tell you something, Skylar. I read that book and I I wept through a lot of it. It like I feel my eyes filling up with tears right now. Um that book is so well written and it's a hard book meaning I you know you, you were bullied like you were you were by by people that you were originally friends with like I, I can't even say enough about it but it talks about everything it talks about letting someone go through their own experience you like utilizing and I don't want to give anything away your friend I think her name was Lucy like how things ended in the end that you had to understand she was going through her own experience or you know all of these things what it's like you know, trying to go to the bathroom, right? What it's like if you have an injury and you don't want to tell people is because you were bullied and going through this whole thing of like, it's because I really am a boy. Like, I, and I know I'm going off on this, Skylar, but it is a great educational piece for parents to read, for teachers to read, for nurses, for therapists. And that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about your childhood experience. So I know I just went off on a tangent, but it was phenomenal. Can I ask you why you chose to do it in somewhat of a fiction manner? Or yeah, yeah. So um, Obi is man enough just for everybody to know it is a fiction novel it's a middle grade novel so for 10 and up um obi is the main character and he is a korean american transgender swimmer um he is not me i i did write it as fiction um though many people i think put us together uh because we're so similar and he, what i always say is obi obi is a is an ode to the boyhood i never had so i i transitioned i realized that i was i was trans when i was 18 and i transitioned when i was 19 um a year you know the year between high school and college. Uh, Obi comes out when he's 10 or so, um, and he transitions before the book begins. And that's really important to me because there are so many stories about coming out and about like beginning a transition and like telling everybody that you're trans. And I wanted Obi to just be himself. I didn't want to focus on his coming out. I didn't want to focus on um, his transition. There are, there are pieces of it that are relevant in the story. Um, but I wanted there to be a story about his life beyond that, right? Um, and I wanted there to be a story about him as a kid because I want there to be stories about trans 
students because we don't see a lot of those, first of all. I definitely didn't see a lot when I was a kid, if any. Um, and I and I think it's so important because kids are actually thinking about gender. Gender identity solidifies before you start preschool for the most part. Between the age of three to five years old is when gender identity solidifies. Um, does that mean every every kid's going to realize that they're trans when they are, when they're three or five years old? No, it, you know, because there's so much social pressure. There's so much lack of information. There's so much disenfranchisement of trans people that, of course, not every trans kid's going to realize they're trans when they're three to five years old, but they can. And that is so important to recognize. And that's why I think this education is not only important for providers, uh, you know, for trans people, but also for kids so that they understand that gender is bigger than what they're usually taught. Um, and when we provide that education to kids, they get to express exactly who they are with the language and the articulation that they need. And people will say, well, but then Skylar, we're going to make these kids trans. You're not. Kids aren't going to do what they don't want to do. They're very good at being themselves. In fact, way better than we are as adults. Um, if you give them the language, they're going to be able to better explain themselves, right? They're going to be nicer to people who are different from them. And yes, you might confuse them. You might. And you know what? If you do, amazing. Because it gives them the space to wonder, who am I? And if they end up not being transgender, they're a cisgender, right? So not transgender person. And they question their gender when they're a child awesome. You have now given that cisgender kid something that most cisgender people will never have. Most cisgender people will never question their gender identity and therefore never come to a solid, healthy, grounded, internal conclusion of who they are. They're going to base their gender identity based on what other people have said that it has to be, what stereotypes are, what gender roles and expectations there are. So OB is Man Enough is a kid's book and it's a fiction novel because I wasn't openly trans when I was a kid. I didn't know who I was then. I was bullied very similarly to OB because I presented myself um, as, a, as a boy. I presented myself in a way that people received me as a boy. And so I very much had a trans childhood, if you will, but I didn't name it as such. And I, I want other kids to have that access. And so that's where OB comes in. It's a really beautiful book. And and I, I appreciate when you're saying you wanted something to be written about life after a trans the transition, because this is similar to what I'm doing with the podcast. This is not a podcast about, so tell me all about your eating disorder. What did you do? How did I? This is about, let's talk about life after, because life after is still complicated and it's amazing. It's it's everything. It's complex, it's rich, it's beautiful, it's scary. And so this is why I do this podcast is because I don't want to hear the stories of when I was in it. I want people to hear what it's like. And just for a little bit of background for any listeners who don't know, part of it is because I used to have clients that would come in and say to me, I'm not doing it right. I was told once I recover that my life is going to be perfect. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry you weren't. You weren't told the truth because that doesn't exist. That life doesn't exist. So then somebody feels like they're failing at recovery. And so, and I love that you show all parts of, of a young soul going through junior high and high school and swimming and all this and friends. And it's just a really beautiful book. I just can't say enough about it. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So if we're going to go back with eating disorders and, and transgender, what about treatment? Meaning, are there barriers? What happens when people try to get treatment? Um, now, you and I are a 
board member for Within Health. And one of the things that I love about it and you love about it, actually, I don't know why I just said what you love about it. I don't even know what you love about it, Skylar. But one of the things that I love is that because it's a completely virtual program, there there aren't these barriers that are going to get in the way of, you know, who says, I'm sorry, this is an all women's program or this is an all male program. And I also want to say programs are growing with gender identity. They are they are sort of starting to come up and understand, but not entirely. So what are the barriers you see to treatment? Um, I want to say a quick just note. I noticed that you have said I'm always big on language. So I just want to give a little bump on language, especially for anybody who's listening. I know you said sort of eating disorders and transgender. Um, and I think it's important to say and transgender people or and transgender clients or and transgender transness is another way you can turn it into a noun. Um, but a little just bump. The reason is, is not that there's a huge issue with saying and transgender. It just can make transgender sound like this, like, oh, this, 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 this thing of transgender, oh, the transgenders, oh, right. And sometimes language can be a way that we really show respect for people. I know you respect me. I know you respect trans people. So this is more for the listeners. Um, I just encourage making sure we use transgender as an adjective. When we don't, we really can kind of dehumanize trans people, right? Or, or, or dehumanize the trans population, if you will. So, you know, eating disorders and the trans population, eating disorders and transness, eating disorders and treating trans clients, et cetera. Um, so just a little note on language. I am so glad that you said that because one of the things that we have talked about prior to the show starting is that when somebody is put in a diagnosis or a label or whatever, they become one dimensional and we don't see all other parts of them. And so I'm really grateful that you corrected that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so barriers to treatment. I mean, one of the biggest barriers to treatment for trans people and eating disorders, I, I think you named it, which is that um, it's eating disorders are considered a women's issue. And they're considered a mostly like white, cisgender, straight woman's issue. Uh, eating disorder spaces, I think, historically have excluded queer people altogether, um, especially just in the narrative, excluded people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, excluded people who are not white, um, and especially excluded people who are not women. If you ask pretty much any audience, and they've done this many times before at trainings, when you picture um, anorexia, who do you picture? What does that person look like? And people will almost always say a thin white woman, right? If you ask about sexuality, they'll probably say she's straight. If you ask about gender identity, they're definitely not going to say she's trans. Um, so it's super important to recognize that it's geared towards cis women. Um, and treatment is geared towards that. Even if you go, I mean, if when we were looking at like websites for treatment centers, a lot of things are like frilly and pink, which there's nothing wrong with pink. In fact, I even have a tattoo on my wrist that says, I believe in pink. But I think that when people, when we make this, it's about making it feminized, essentially. That's what they've aligned it with. And I think there's a danger to that. There's a deep danger to that. Um, eating disorder, uh, eating disorders affect, you know, everybody indiscriminately, right? There's the eating disorders do not discriminate. Um, however, uh, or guess, and eating disorders disproportionately affect queer and trans people. Um, in fact, some 79%, a recent study I read, 79% of trans masculine individuals struggle with eating disorder, 79%. The you know general women population is 13%, which is also massive, by the way. 13% is already a really high population. Um, but 79% uh, 
Okay, so and queer and queer men are the same, um, and uh, not same statistic, but more. It's it's more prevalent. So when we think about the fact that the prevalence within the queer and trans community is so high for eating disorders, why are there so few treatment centers that are really actively engaging in gender and sexuality informed care? Right. That's a huge issue. Uh, and there's so there's, you know, there's a, a growing number of people identifying as non-binary as well due to the to the reach of, of like language, right? Where where people are understanding their genders more, which is awesome. Um, but the barrier there is is stigma, right? Oh, this person's a women's issue. I can't get treatment for it. Um the, there's actually, I think, growing data as well within like cis male populations um, of, of issues with eating disorders that just masked as other things, right? Doesn't look like eating disorder, looks like intense bodybuilding or intense, like, I don't know, nutrition for sports. What people will write it off is like, oh, that's fine. That's a man. He can't have an eating disorder, right? Um, and these really hurt everyone because <laughs> eating disorders are not one-dimensional just like trans people aren't one-dimensional like you just said um so i would say that sort of stigma and um stereotype is really really harmful beyond that a lot of trans people a lot of marginalized people um especially sort of black so a specific a segment black trans people have really uh high um rates of, of discrimination within just medical care in general and are less likely than to reach out um to medical care and i can't speak from personal experience as i'm not a black trans person um but having read about a lot of of that medical discrimination and we we know that that's prevalent in many different ways um there's there's already a distrust of, of of healthcare for good reason, right? Um, so I think when we consider all these barriers, the way we we dismantle them is a by being anti-racist, and we all need to be doing our anti-racism trainings um, and really investing as a daily practice in that, uh, and also just just general education about diversity. Right. Um, lane changer is a way that you can learn about trans people, but that's just one thing. Right. Um, I, we do address lots of things in lane changer because I'm a very intersectional person, but there's more to address beyond that. Right. So um, I could go on forever about this, but I'm going to pause there. Well, I, I actually I, I'm sort of like, don't pause. Like, I mean, anything else that you want to say about it? I mean, it is it is critical for people to understand this. I mean, I also want to point out you and I in this dialogue. As you said, you know how much I respect people and that some of my words were not appropriate that I was using. And you and I are are nice to each other. Like this, this is not this is a hard conversation sometimes when people are feeling misunderstood, misgendered, you know, not the medical community doesn't appreciate that. Like, I'm gonna say keep going, Skylar, because this is very, very important. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, another thing that I think is really, really important for providers, especially to help reduce these barriers, is on an individual level, right? So like I said earlier, getting educated on, on what it means to be transgender, meeting a trans person. So again, you can do that through Lane Changer because there's a significant of my amount of my story in there. So you can actually sit and feel like you know a trans person. That's a huge way to, to, to sort of step in without um, putting trans people in your life on, on, the, uh, on, on the spot, right? We don't want to, if I, if I tell people like, oh, you need to learn what it means to be trans, that does not mean go ask all the trans people in your personal life to explain to you what it means to be trans. It means pay people who do this work um, for, for a living. So example, lane changer, right? Um, to, to learn from them. Um, but what, beyond that, one of the things I find that's really a barrier um, in, in giving great 
gender-affirming healthcare is actually our own biases, right? I'm going to go back to the beginning of this podcast. When we when we don't, when we miss the fact that we are all transphobic, we are all racist, we are all white supremacists, we are all sexist and misogynist. Why? Not because we're horrible people, but because we live in this world. Wait, we are all born and raised, doesn't matter where you are, you are born and raised if you live on Earth, which everybody listening does, right? In a white supremacist, misogynistic, sexist, transphobic, homophobic society. And we have to start with that acceptance saying, okay, that's where I've started. And it doesn't make me a bad person to have these biases. It makes me a bad person when I don't address the biases, right? And I don't even think that this is a personal belief. So I don't know if other people would agree with me, but I think it's unlikely that I'm going to be, or anybody's going to be able to accurately, completely dissolve all of our biases. That's not the end goal, right? Similar to uh, recovering from any sort of, the goal is not perfection. It's being aware, I think. It's about progress, right? About saying, okay, I now know here are my soft spots. Here are my hard spots. Here are the things that I'm not great at. Here are things that I I am great at. And how can I best practice with those understandings, right? Um, was I raised in a really like white Christian homophobic area and that I really need to dive into religious diversity, that I need to dive into gender diversity, sexuality diversity. And I am gonna recognize that it's going to be hard for me. And on a personal level, I think dissecting these things is so important for therapists because if we sit and listen to all the education and we're like, yeah, yeah, I understand the right words. I understand the right diversity. I understand I have to be good at these X, Y, and Z things, but we don't actually dissect the our own humanity as we do that. If we don't actually address how we feel, I think we really lose a lot of that work. So I, I encourage therapists, if they are uncomfortable with certain issues, if you've listened to this conversation, for example, and you're finding yourself feeling uncomfortable, you're finding yourself being like, no, I don't believe in that, or like a knee-jerk reaction of some kind, therapists are really good at logicking themselves out of that, being like, oh, but this, oh, but that, oh, but this. No, hold on to that negative feeling and, and address it, Right. Make, make some space for that feeling. There's probably a reason you feel that way. If you're resistant to me and my masculinity and my manhood, maybe there's something about masculine and manhood you need to dissect. And if you're a man, a cis man specifically, maybe you feel insecure about the fact that I'm able to, quote, just claim my manhood, even though that's not truly what it is. But sometimes that's, the, that's what I hear from other cis men is that they feel insecure because I'm able to be a man in a way that I wasn't, quote, born. It's very complex, but usually when we have these resistances or these knee-jerk reactions, these feelings towards marginalized groups, it's because we have some sort of internal battle that we need to dissect. And that will push your own therapy, your own evolution forwards. So it's good no matter how you look at it, but it will make you a better provider because you'll be able to come from a place of grounding as opposed to a place of like just logicking your, logicking yourself through whatever bias you might have. I am so glad that I asked you to keep going because (laughs) this is incredible. And again, I I love the fact that you brought in the idea, like if you're listening to this and there's parts that make you feel uncomfortable, then you need to, you need to go deeper because it's, it's, I just, it's true. And this is also what I love about the podcast. It's just you and I having a dialogue and hopefully people are listening sort of like if like they're eavesdropping into our conversation and being like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. Like, okay, great. Don't look away from that. Look into it. Why? So I think it's wonderful. Skylar, I, I am truly sorry to say that we are actually going to have to wind this down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with listeners? Anything at all? Yeah. I mean, I'll say um, none of these 
none of this education happens in a vacuum. You'll notice that throughout the conversation, I've brought in many times, you know, race equity um, and anti-racism as, as a primary thing. We talked about weight discrimination. Um, I think ableism is a big part of also eating disorder recovery. You know, a lot of people who are also disabled and trying to recover from eating disorders, there's also barriers there. None of this happens in a vacuum. Right now, we've got 94, as of April 13th, 94 anti-transgender bills going around the country, 94. There are over 230 anti-LGBTQ plus bills going around the country. We also got abortion bans going around the country. We've got critical race theory bans going around the country. None of these things are happening in a vacuum. And the reason I'm naming this and making it political for a second is because people's lives are on the line. Right. There are kids dying because of these bills. And again, it's bigger than just trans and queer people. It's about trying to control anybody who violates the white, cisgender, heterosexual norm, right? And, and also like upper middle class as well. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that and the work that we do here um, from an individual level, right? Addressing your own bias and leaning into that discomfort, expanding it, really saying, why do I feel uncomfortable instead of trying to just shove it away? Um, up to the really big things of, of having um, every treatment center have gender-informed care, right? And having trans consultants say, hey, here's how you can be more you know, gender-informed. All of these levels are so important and they will absolutely save lives. And the work that providers do it, are doing is so, so important. And so the more that we can make it more competent and more uh, expansive, more comprehensive, the better. I, I am here talking to you, Karen, because of providers who saved my life. I am here because my therapist saved my life. I'm here because my therapist at OPC, Josephine, saved my life. I'm here because of the treatment centers that I went, right? Wendy's first treatment center, OPC. Um, these places have uh, consistently, these people have saved my life, and it's because they, they took the chance to be a little bit more open than they maybe thought they could. And we all can do that. We all, all can be just a little bit more open, and that will absolutely save somebody's life. Um, and so I encourage everybody to, to lean in. Skylar, from the bottom of my heart, I cannot thank you enough, not only for being a guest on this podcast, but being the hundredth episode and sharing, this is like the tip of the iceberg. And mm. it it kind of gives me chills a little bit how much more needs to be talked about. But I just, yeah. I just want to thank you again, like I said, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks for, for doing this education for folks. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next time. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.